Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder, Lori LeBay. Welcome today. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood here in Minnesota, and I hope it is in your space, too. Before we get started with the program, I always like to tell people a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks because we're always getting new listeners around the world. And so Alzheimer's Speaks is really just an advocacy-based company providing multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We truly believe that by joining forces and sharing our knowledge and having these everyday conversations about life with dementia, we can remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help those in the trenches dealing with the disease. Together, we can help everybody understand the true needs and remove the myths and just create a better community for everyone to live. At our core, we believe, again, collaboratively, that we can win this battle against this disease, and we're gaining strength. And I know it's working because of all of your clicks and likes have had just an absolutely phenomenal impact. We were honored um, by being recognized as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's, according to ShareCare and Dr. Oz, and that would not have happened without all of your support. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart, and if you would continue to share our episodes, and you can do that by liking us on and sharing it with your community and Facebook. If you have a Twitter account, you can tweet it. If you belong to LinkedIn, you can send these episodes directly to your groups as well. You can also email these out or feel free to embed them into your websites. Um, it's important to have these conversations. And again, I, I feel really strongly that it's important for us to share the information. So we're going to continue to raise awareness and remove stigmas by having conversations with people who actually have dementia. Um, and we want to hear from people all over the globe because this is not an isolated case by any stretch of the imagination. We want to hear from care partners. We want to hear from businesses that are doing something unique and different um, to shift our dementia care culture. We want to hear from advocates. If you're a musician or if you're riding your bike across the country or across the town, um, give us a holler. And I'd love to talk to you further about coming on the show and telling us um, about your passion and getting involved. 
For those of you that have not uh, gone to our website, I encourage you to do that. It's just www.alzheimerspeaks.com, and there you'll have access to all of our platforms. And I would really like you to engage with us there as well. Um, you can access the radio show, the blog, our Twitter accounts. You can um, go to the, the Dementia Chats webinars that we do twice a month, which are totally free as well. And while we're live, um, we would love you to participate in the program. And you can do that two ways. You can use your chat box, and I'll be monitoring that um, during the program. And as there's a break in the conversation, I'll go ahead and pull up your comment or your question. Or you can actually call in live to the show, and that number is 714-364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And uh, again, we'd love to hear hear your thoughts. I also like to mention before we get going, uh, just some connections for you to be able to make. The Alzheimer's Disease International Organization is an organization of all the Alzheimer's associations throughout the world. So it's a fabulous place if you're looking for support, no matter where you live, to tap into. In addition to um, being able to direct you to the organization in your neighborhood, there's also tons of resources on that site. And you can access them by Googling just Alzheimer's Disease International. Or you can um, go to their website directly, which is www.alz dot c o dot u k um the other association that I want to mention is the Lewy Body uh, Dementia Association. So many people out there are struggling with Lewy Body and aren't quite sure where to go, and the disease is a little bit different. And um, although a lot of other organizations have information, you can go right to the horse's mouth with the Lewy Body Dementia Association. And their, um, their URL is just www.lbda.org, and that stands for Louis Body Dementia Association. We also want to welcome Puzzles with me as uh, as somebody who we just uh, think very highly of in terms of their their product. And uh, you can just go to puzzleswithme.com, and of course, Norms McNamara and uh, Jane with the Purple Angel. If you are not familiar with this global symbol, you definitely want to check that out. And you can just go to purpleangel.org.uk or you can find information on my site as well, alzheimerspeaks.com. Um, many times people will ask me about studies and where to go, and there's a, a great new Tau study out. And you can go to the Alzheimer's Studies Dot com for further information on that. And then last, I always love to mention, which, which is close to my heart, uh, Choral Health with Music First. Um, I believe music is just such a powerful, powerful engagement tool and calming um, for most of us. And if you go to their site at choralhealth.com, you'll get all kinds of information. And that is C-O-R-O, um, health. Dot com. 
Well, today's show is going to be, I think, just a fabulous one. We're lucky enough to have uh, back with us Sherry Snelling from the Caregiver Club. And Sherry is the founder and CEO of the Caregiver Club, and she's the author of A Cast of Caregivers, Celebrity Stories to Help You Prepare for Care. And she was on the show a while back and is just a fascinating, fascinating person doing some absolutely extraordinary things. She was also um, one of the people who was um, in the top ten with me uh, uh, with the Dr. Oz recognition and and share care for um, being an influencer online for Alzheimer's disease. And I know both of us are extremely honored to, to be in that top ten spot. Sherry is a caregiver uh, contributor for the Huffington Post and Forbes, USA Today, The Weekend Magazine, um, PBS and Next Avenue, The Examiner, MariaShriver.com, The Alzheimer's Association, and so much more. Uh, This is really one talented and highly respected woman in the industry. She's also the creator of me Time Monday, which is a weekly video in support of nonprofit um, Health Mondays campaigns, and creator and producer and host of a cable TV program called Handle with Care. Uh, she's the former chairman of the National Alliance for Caregiving and has served on the Caregiving Advisory Councils for the White House and also the United Nations International Caregiving Summit. So this woman has been around and is highly connected. Her passion for helping caregivers both professionally and personally comes through in every word she speaks. So I know we're going to have a lot of uh, fun with her today. Uh, Welcome to the show, Sherry. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Lori. It's great to be back here with you. Well, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here. You know, last time we really dug into your book, and it was just absolutely fascinating, um, the stories that, that were shared um, from the celebrities and, and being able to pull all of that together. And today we're going to kind of talk about the sandwich generation and the juggling act of children and being a, a carer and caregiving and some of the do's and don'ts in terms of handling the ball. Um, and you've got a saying that says, taking care of me. Can you explain what you mean? Um, by taking care of me? Sure. Well, you know, um, when we talk about the sandwich generation, that's that group of caregivers, as we know, that squeezed between still taking care of children who are at home and now also having to take care of an older parent. And so they're really squeezed between the two generations. And I talk about this juggling act that they have going on, which is children plus typically career or a job, plus caregiving, and the ball that's getting dropped is the one that says me. So it's so important to make sure that we're understanding how do we find that time to balance our self-care because, as you and I both know, if the caregivers don't take care of themselves, then they become more ill and they neglect their own health and wellness and have chronic stress and headaches and fatigues and fatigue and insomnia and all these other issues with their health that then may make it impossible to continue caring for their loved ones. And that's that's not a scenario that any of us want to see. Definitely. And I, and I think that it is so important that we get so wrapped up 
in giving care to someone else that we totally forget to put ourselves on the list. Um, I know I did that, and, and I ended up having some health problems that cropped up. It wasn't anything severe, but all of a sudden I had um, acid reflux, and I had asthma, you know, I put on weight, which I still haven't lost all of it, but, um, you know, all of those types of things just kind of come into play, and you're so busy, you're just like, I can't take time to go to the gym, I can't take time to eat right, I can't take time to spend time with friends, or maybe just sit by myself, you know, or sneak out to a movie, or go out to right. dinner, because the guilt is so heavy. How do you how do you suggest people work that in? Well, you know, I think first of all we have to recognize that and I think this happens particularly with a lot of the dementia caregivers. We know 15 million Americans across the country right now are caring for a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's. And what happens is the stress that we're feeling is really invisible. You know, it's not like a wound where you have a bandage on your arm or, a, a you know, a broken leg and you can see the cast. Stress is inside of us. And unfortunately, it's doing bad things to our health, but we don't see it every day. So when I do workshops and presentations, I always ask the audience, do me a favor, and I'm going to ask your listeners right now, as we're talking, do you feel your tongue pressed against the roof of your mouth? And if you answer yes to that question, that is one of the signs of chronic stress that we don't even realize is happening. And so when we can discover, oh, my gosh, you know what? My tongue is pressed against the roof of my mouth most of the day. And <laughs> then we start, you know, and by the way, I'm one of those people that can say yes to that question. You know, then we start to recognize, okay, you know what? I'm more stressed than maybe I even thought. How do I find time to relax? How do I find time to just kind of clear the noise pollution in my life, get a little bit of a break, and um, and do something that takes care of me and gives me that refresh moment so I can get back to all of these responsibilities that I'm trying to juggle. And so I have a workshop that I've started doing for different organizations that is called The Magnificent Seven Ways to Caregiver Wellness. And I can take take you through each of those seven um, different categories, but they fall into seven buckets, which is physical, emotional, social, environmental, spiritual, intellectual, and financial. Okay. Yeah, there, and there, I don't think people realize how many wells there are that we dip into um, or that we drain you know, at times, and I right. think that that's... Really important. Can you give us um, just a hair on each of those, kind of an example? Sure. And I don't want, you know, I think the the daunting thing when you think, oh, my gosh, seven seven more things I have to do now. So I don't want <laughs> caregivers to feel like, okay, we're going to just load more, you know, we're going to throw more balls into your juggling act. No, no, no. This is These are just categories to think about within your own life. And what are small things that you can do, um, whether it's during the day or during the week, um, that help refill some of these buckets? And, you know, you can prioritize them as you need. But, for instance, with physical, here's one that I think is really interesting. You know, we, we talk a lot about nutrition and exercise and, you know, fitness, but the number one thing that you can do that will actually improve your health and help with stress is sleep. 
And it sounds simple, right? Seven to good eight hours of sleep a night is what we are told we need to get. And yet most Americans, according to the CDC, are getting less than six hours of sleep a night. And so when I did the research for my book and my workshops, I found that um, there were a lot of research studies out there showing that, for instance, if you get less than five and a half hours of sleep a night, you will then have the equivalent the next day of a .05 blood alcohol level. So it's almost as if you've been drinking the night before. Oh, no, that's a day. <laughs> that's a really interesting way to frame that because people yeah. get that. You know, okay, yeah, so you're they loopy. Do. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. loopy, you're not you're distracted, um, you know, you're not able to focus. And so again, if you're thinking about you're trying to get the kids off to school or you're getting to work or you're taking care of mom and you know, maybe need to get her to adult daycare or something. You know, if you're distracted and these things are going on, you're going to put yourself at more risk for whether it's, you know, auto accidents or whether it's, you know, dropping something and, and, you know, hurting yourself. So I think that, you know, it's really interesting how sleep can affect us. The other study I found, and I think this is going to resonate with both of the, the female listeners out there, us women, is that, again, going back to the, less than six hours of sleep a night, if you get less than five and a half hours of sleep a night, even if you're eating well and nutritiously and you're exercising on a regular basis, you are still going to gain 12 pounds over the course of a year because your metabolism is thrown off and your insulin levels are thrown off and you're gaining weight because of your lack of sleep. Aha, uh-huh. I like that answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 I mean, it puts it in another another light of how to lose the pounds, and and I right. know that I that I don't uh, eat or sleep as well as I should. In fact, I just got a a, a Fitbit through Verizon. Have you heard of that? It's a it's an app. I have, yes. And and it's quite interesting. And you wear this thing, and it monitors, you know, how many steps you take. But it can also help you figure out um, your sleep habits. And you wear it at night, and then you just push the button when you go to sleep. And then every time you you know you wake up, you'll hit it again. And then you know, so if you get up to go to the bathroom, you hit it, and then you hit it again when you go back to sleep. And you know, each time. And so in the morning, it'll actually calculate. Okay, what was your sleep time? And and with that, I mean, you still have to take into account that, you know, chances are if you're like me, you don't fall asleep as soon as you hit the button. It'd be nice to train ourselves to do that. But, but, um, but, you know, I think a lot of times we just don't realize how many times we're up or we wake up during the night. We just kind of roll over and readjust and and um, and how disruptive that really can be to our health as a whole. Well, you're absolutely right. And again, you know, we know that caregivers have expressed that insomnia is one of their challenges um, because, again, they've got, you know, all these worries on your mind. And as you said, you know, waking up during the night is disrupting our, our you know, sound sleep, our restorative sleep. And there was a study that was recently done that showed that if you have more than five awakenings in an hour during the, the uh, night, and that's quite a bit, but still, mm-hmm. if you do, you're going to put yourself at risk for uh, a predictive factor towards Alzheimer's disease for yourself. So there's a lot of research going on out there about sleep and health, 
And that's one of the, I think, the messages to caregivers is we know it's tough, but, boy, if, if you do one thing to try to improve your health, get your sleep. Try to get your sleep. Well, that's uh, that's very, very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, do you want to pick out maybe a, another one of your, you know, top seven, magnificent seven that you want to share with us? This sure. is really very interesting, Sherry. Yeah, sure. No, thank you. Well, I think, you know, emotional is certainly an important one. And, again, when we're talking about the caregivers of those with dementia and Alzheimer's, you know, we know that all caregivers, no matter what the disease or disorder have challenges and have that physical, emotional impact. But I think with dementia, it's a lot tougher, I have to honestly say, because, you know, if I mean, right now my dad has cancer. And even though, you know, he's struggling with the cancer, he can still talk to me. We can still share, you know, uh, moments and, and memories and, and things like that. But with someone with Alzheimer's, as we know, that becomes more and more difficult. And I think that really, really puts an emotional strain on our caregivers. And so two things that you can do to really help yourself emotionally, and and I think they're equally important. One, of course, we know the power of support groups. Um, And particularly when, you know, you're you're going through a certain um, journey like Alzheimer's, you have to be able to talk to other caregivers who are on that same journey, Um, you know, You have friends or coworkers or even other siblings across the country who are sympathetic, but if they're not in it and if they don't know exactly what you're dealing with, whether it's incontinence issues, whether it's the wandering that mom is now doing, whether it's the just the memory loss or sundowning, um, you have to be able to talk to somebody else who's going through that same journey, and you can really commiserate and sometimes vent and know that they're going to get it, and it's not going to be seen as whining or complaining. Um, So support groups, I think, are just absolutely essential. And then the other thing that balances that is what I call the vault. And the vault is that one person in your life. It might be your spouse. It might be your best friend. It might even be your sister or your brother. Um, But it's, it's the one person who has known you for, you know, quite a long time, And you can go to that person and you can tell them anything. You can cry, you can laugh, you can scream, you can, you know, tell them all your anger and frustration, and it's going to go in the vault. They're not going to judge you. They're not going to throw it back in your face later on. They're not going to um, make you feel bad about how you're feeling. And I feel that support groups in the vault are kind of the two best things that caregivers, the gifts you can give yourself because, it really takes that boulder off your shoulder of, of the challenges that you have in caregiving. I like that. When you said vault, what came to mind for me initially was um, like pole vaulting and getting over the hump. But I like I like your definition so much better because <laughs> it is just that that safety, that, that place where you can just, you know, it, it's just safe. Just, exactly. I, it's, yes. And you do, and I love the fact that you use that word because that is the perfect word. Both of these things, whether it's the support groups or the vault, they are our safety net, truly, emotionally. So that's great, great word. I love it. Yeah, well, and I think when you're going through this, I mean, if you're the person diagnosed or if you're a loved one dealing with it, um, so many times you don't feel safe, you don't feel comfortable, you're on edge, 
you know, you're you're always kind of looking for the other shoe to drop or, you know, to try to prevent the other shoe from dropping, whatever it is. But there's this sense of angst. And to be able to, you know, have that person, find that person and utilize them, because I think one of the mistakes is sometimes people don't utilize their vaults. And there yeah. are people in their lives that are willing to to be that for them. Um, but we have to be brave enough to bear our souls and to, yeah. to, you know, to be totally authentic and to trust. And and that's scary. That's a scary thing to do sometimes. It is a scary thing to do. And I think that, you know, our society preconditions ourselves to think that if we um, – if we are vulnerable and we talk about it and we talk about our fears and we talk about our frustrations, that that somehow makes us weak. But to be honest, as you just said, it's a brave thing to do. It actually makes you stronger, I think, to be able to share your story, share what you're going through, maybe even help others while you're helping yourself. And and particularly, again, with, with those, uh, with a loved one with Alzheimer's or dementia, we know that you know, a lot of, in fact, a quarter of those diagnosed with Alzheimer's hide their disease. And when they hide their disease, you know, we as our as their caregivers feel that we also have to live in those shadows. And that pushes us further and further from getting the help that we need. And I think if, if we can work through ways to take this out of the shadows, take the stigma off the disease, talk to others, I, I really do believe we're going to start helping each other, and it's going to help us with, you know, the emotional side, which impacts our health side as well. Oh, definitely. And, you know, you're so right. Um, being vulnerable um, is kind of a taboo thing, and and it is it's such a beautiful place to be. I, I, and, again, mm-hmm. it goes back to, to feeling safe. I mean, there's just nothing like feeling safe. I mean, yeah. it's, you know, Maslow's theory, I mean, it's at the bottom of the rung, and, and it's there for a reason because it's so critical to us as a people. And we've ignored that, and we've, you know, think that we have to be so independent, and we, you know, look at what do others think, and we're trying to meet everyone's expectations. And we forget about our own needs, you know, getting back to taking care of ourselves. And feeling safe and comfortable is massively huge. And when we're in that space, others will be in that space. You know, when we're anxious yeah. and frustrated, you know, we, we notch everybody else up a knot, you know. <laughs> just, yeah, I mean, that's they, true. They feel, they feel that, those nonverbals come through. Even though we think we're faking it, we've got a smile on our face, people can still sense something is out of sync with us. And that puts yeah. them on edge. And it's much easier to have a conversation saying, I'm uncomfortable, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm angry, I'm whatever, because then people at least know what the heck they're dealing with and what you're right. dealing with. And they can be right. more supportive versus a smile that says, I'm just fine, and inside you're going, yeah, I'm going to jump off a bridge. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know? Um, because, because of right. the mixed signals and stuff. And so, yeah, very, very 
important stuff. Now, I know that you are into a lot of research and stuff on the sandwich generation, too, and I'd like to be able to, to dive into that, but there's more Gen Xers and boomers, which, you know, most people think, you know, boomers outweigh the Gen Xers, you know, a zillion to none, and there's right. never going to be a big bigger crowd out there and um you know men versus women so can you share some some interesting statistics uh, that you found in your research sure sure in fact i just wrote a couple articles uh one for half post and you know pew research which is one of the premier research companies out there they just did an analysis of the sandwich generation and interestingly enough, that group of caregivers is what I call getting younger. And what I mean by that is we've always, as you said, thought about that sandwich generation being a baby boomer. And while one-third of boomers um, are sandwich generation, 42% of that group of caregivers who are caring for children and parents at the same time are Gen X, which means you know these are folks who are in their 40s, and even late 30s, and so we're really tapping in now to younger generations who are being touched by caregiving, and when you think about the earlier diagnoses that can come with Alzheimer's with early onset, um, so your journey might start sooner rather than later, um, it's really starting to impact, you know, more and more of us, and particularly that group of people who are working still. So that's your third ball you're juggling is you've got mom and or dad, you've got your kids, and then you've also got, you know, the job or the career that you have to be responsible for. Um, so I thought that was really interesting because I think that really has implications for employers and our workplace. How do we need to change and shift our thinking? You know, when women started entering the workforce back in the 70s in droves, um, companies started to recognize, well, maybe we need to look at what we can do to support those women in the workplace. Is it child care services? Is it this? Is it that? Now we're shifting to elder care. That's the big challenge in the workplace over the next, you know, 7 to 20 years because we're going to have more parents to care for than children. Wow. It's well, and when you're you're talking about the workplace, you know, I think the workplace has tried extremely hard to ignore this issue, <laughs> and, and and I just don't think there's any way around it anymore because it is going to affect them, like you said, on so many levels, from an employee who might end up um, being diagnosed to family and friends dealing with it to somebody, you know, I, it's just so many levels and their their prospects and customers and you know how they service people um how they communicate it it's going to come at them in so many angles and if they don't start getting a grip and having an honest conversation about the effect that this disease um is going to have on their company I, you know mm -hmm. it it scares me it really scares me um because i mean i've heard just horror stories where even um, medical companies, you know, healthcare companies have not dealt with with one of their employees who has been diagnosed with the disease in a very fair, respectful fashion at all. I mean, it's been right. very, very ignorant. And you think that would be the last place that that would right. occur. And right. you know, there's a lot. There's a lot of training. Um, there's a lot of dynamics to this um, and, and repercussions. And then just from, you know, the service aspects, and there's so many cool things going on. I don't know if you're 
familiar with, like, even with the risk grant project that Gary LeBlanc is doing, which is incorporating the Global Purple Angel. Um, and one of the hospitals in Florida is going to be rolling this system out. So it will identify anybody who um, comes in with dementia right away, and they've got a system for, you know, on the doors, and it's not going to say dementia. It's just going to be a, a respectful sign that will cue people in to, you know, we have to we have to deal with this situation a little bit different. And, right. you know, there's just so many unique little things that can be done that aren't going to cost a ton of money. They're not going to take a lot of time. There's going to be definitely some training involved, but there's training in terms of any type of improvement in terms of your services. And right. a lot of the techniques um, don't have to apply just to dementia. You know, they can be used in a right. lot of variables. Right. That. Well, and I think, again, I think this is where opening up the dialogue, having conversations like with you, what you're doing with your radio show and so many other things that you do, you know, again, taking the veil off of this disease so that people really get it. And you're right, education is critical. You know, we need to obviously start with our HR departments. They have to understand what are the implications of Alzheimer's in their workplace and how does that impact you know, their workforce, and from there, what can be done. And then, as you said, in every sector, whether it's our law enforcement, understanding, you know, what happens when, you know, they find an older loved one who's wandered or, you know, our hospitals who need to, as you said, triage better with the purple wristbands. I mean, every facet of our lives, we just have to understand a lot of these disorders and diseases better because, let's face it, we're all living longer. You know, at the beginning of the century, the average lifespan was 47 years old, which means I would have been dead three years by now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I think about that, I think, wow, that is pretty amazing. And, of course, now I think the average, you know, today is 78 years old. But we know that we're going to, I mean, one in every 50 baby boomer women will live to the age of 100. And that statistic always blows me away when I think about it because I'm a boomer myself. And I think, wow, I'm not prepared to be a centenarian. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it is. I mean, whoever would have thought we'd live this long? I mean, and I look at my, my mom as a prime example. Whoever, I mean, and I get this all the time, well, she couldn't have had dementia that long. You know, because it's right. been 30 years. Let right. me explain to right. you. Yeah, we've been living with it, you know, it, it's happening. It, was she formally diagnosed originally? No, because the doctors misdiagnosed her and said it was hormones. But she knew she was having significant cognitive problems. And, right. you know, so it makes no difference in terms of, you know, well, well, she wasn't formally diagnosed. Well, okay, if that makes you feel better and you want to say she's only had it 20 years, you go ahead and say that. You know, right. but we're still right. living and breathing this. And until we educate people and we have better tools, um, we're not, we're not going to have accurate time frames for this disease. And I, I think, you know, we're going to see more and more people like my mom. I mean, there's people in their, you know, well, you know, their 60s, their 50s, their 40s, even their 30s and their 20s being diagnosed with this disease now. And yeah. And you know, every like you said, everyone's living longer. So this is yeah. a this is a long journey. This isn't something that's going to go away quickly. Not that it can't in some cases, but 
um, you know, I talk with people all the time on, well, you know, they told me six to seven years, and that would be it. And, you know, here they're out still speaking, running around, right. and advocating and doing things. And, and they're like, right. I never thought I, I would have this full of a life. And right. even when they say that full of a life, they kind of, it kind of jumps out of their mouth going, wow, right. <laughs> here I am with dementia talking about a full life. And it's like, well, how great is that? You know, right, right. It is. Well, and it's interesting because, again, we just haven't maybe lived long enough to have Alzheimer's touch us. You know, my mom said something interesting to me the other day. A dear friend of hers has been diagnosed with dementia, and she said, oh, it's just so sad. You know, Joni can't really recognize me anymore and doesn't, you know, know where she is half the time. She said, we're just so lucky that we don't have Alzheimer's in our family. And I said, but mom... The situation is we may not have lived long enough with our ancestors to to know that we will have Alzheimer's. It's still a possibility. And she was really kind of taken aback by that comment. But the truth is, you know, we can't assume just because we don't have Alzheimer's in our past. Well, yeah, if you have grandparents or great-grandparents who are passing away in their 60s or their 70s, they may not just have lived long enough yet to be diagnosed, and I think that's the big message out there. This is, you know, this is a non-discriminatory disease. We know one out of every two Americans who reaches the age of 85 will develop dementia. It's just, that's the stat, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and the other thing is, I mean, and it's kind of, it makes me kind of chuckle when people are just so shocked that they could get this disease. You know, how many how many times in a family do you hear someone getting breast cancer or colon cancer? No one's had it before. Well, someone's got to be right. the first, you know. And right. so right. there's no there's no tracking that. And right. you know, and the and you might have the cells in your body, but for whatever reason, they might not activate either. So right. I mean this this is a crapshoot and it's it's about you know getting educated in and living the best life you can and and gathering knowledge and and I think it's only right to share that knowledge you know what you learn pass on don't be a private vault that's not safe right <laughs> you know right. that's not, right. that's not that's not adding value be a be a public vault when you are filled with information when it comes to this disease, and that's where even the power of of just the little things that I'm doing with the radio show and the dementia chats, where people are sharing the knowledge. That's that's why I do these things. It's because this isn't mine. This is out there for everybody. This is about raising everyone's voice, raising everyone's comfort level um, in terms of being able to access information freely. And in a comfortable right. mode, because that's when we learn best. Um, keeping information to ourselves, you know, this isn't passing a test because you're getting promoted and you don't want the other guys to know the answers. You know, that's not what this is about. This is about right. all of us working together as a team and being able to have these open discussions about what's working and what's not working because there is no one answer. And I think that's one of the very big differences with this disease. Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, that we were, you know, you, you mentioned, tell us some statistics. You know, I just wrote an article for Forbes, and you can find it online, and it was originally written for PBS Next Avenue. Um, and it was about the rise of men as caregivers. Because, again, we often talk about women 
being the caregivers, and that's always yep. been kind of the majority. But there is actually an increase now in men stepping up to be primary caregivers. Pew, again, our Pew Research source says 45% of all caregivers are now men. So that's an uptick from the last handful of years of 34%, which the National Alliance for Caregiving found back in 2009. So obviously this is also impacting our male population, and what's interesting there is how men and women do deal differently with caregiving stress. And, you know, we were talking earlier about support groups, and I find that, again, I think that men in particular, you know, don't want to feel weak and don't necessarily want to reach out. Men aren't as good maybe as women, you know, having those girlfriend talks. You know, they don't – they like to go out and, you know, have a round of golf or shoot some hoops with the guys and get it out physically rather than talk about it. But I did talk to a few men from my article who said, you know, support groups were my lifeline. And whether I found it through my church or my synagogue or, you know, my faith-based organization or whether I found it through the the disease, the disorder that my loved one has, it really helped me to talk to other men who then, you know, could share some things that they were struggling with. And so I want to get that message out to all of your male listeners that, you know, there are a lot of support groups now for men who are caregivers, and I think that's really critical. Yeah, there there are a lot, a lot more out there, and they're feeling much more comfortable talking about this because they, one of the things that um, I hear through our memory cafe, which is um, not just for men, but it's basically for couples, you know, or families, um, but most of the people that come are, you know, husband and wife or partners, and they say over and over how critical this space is for them because it is their vault. It is their safe spot um, where they can laugh and cry and not feel embarrassed and just be understood and accepted, plus find support. Um, If that's in a a hug or someone grabbing a hand or if it's um, actual advice or a referral, go saying try this. Um, but how powerful that connection is. I, I also think with men, one of the things, you know, it hasn't, that they say all the time is, wow, I didn't know what this role was like. <laughs> you know, that my wife played all these, all these years. There's a lot more to this caregiving thing because things were so separated. And, you know, we're seeing, every, like you said, everyone's living a little bit longer, and so roles are definitely changing. And I know, you know, my dad was definitely one of those. I mean, man couldn't boil water. And right. all of a sudden, he, you know, he was doing everything, and he stepped up to the plate so beautifully. And I think we really have to give more men credit. Um, But part of it is they have to come out of the closet first in terms of (laughs) saying this is my role. And I have found that probably more men than women um, in my conversations aren't comfortable being called a caregiver. Have you found that? Yes. You know, I think it's always been difficult for caregivers to self-identify and say, oh, yes, that's who I am. I'm a caregiver. But men in particular don't necessarily assume that label. You're right. (laughs) And that makes it difficult then to find them and give them the help they need because that's the the word and the term we all use um, who are out there trying to advocate and connect people to, you know, good sources. So Mm -hmm. you're right. 
um, you know, the other thing I thought was really interesting in the article I wrote, I talked a lot about how men and women are different, particularly in dealing with the caregiving stress that we encounter. And here's something I thought you'd find interesting. So we know that men deal with stress better. And the reason why is because they take this block and tackle approach. This was a research study that was done by Bowling Green State University, and um, they saw that men caring for an older parent, they have a list of tasks, and they basically go through that list and check them off during the day. And whatever it is, you know, got to drop the kids off at school, got to get mom to the doctor, got to get to work, they just simply checked off the list. Whereas women who are caregiving, we also have our list, but then we worry about our performance, and we think, oh, my gosh, <laughs> did I do that right thing for mom? Was she happy? She didn't have a good look on her face when I dropped her off, or, you know, I should have asked more of the doctor when I was there with dad. And all day long, we carry this stress around with us, and as we just talked earlier, we know stress is a bad thing, and it's invisible. So I, I would say, ladies, we need to take a page out of the men's playbook on this one and do the block and tackle kind of approach <laughs> very uh, that is so true that is so so true and that's one of like you said one of the biggest distinctions of how we care is is how we how we process this stuff and the guys they'll just go in they'll do it they'll forget it it's done right, and, and, right. And, and we just carry that burden of how we just did plus what we have to do and then we wonder why our shoulders get heavy and why we get so tired you know, dragging because right. we because we don't let anything go. We just keep dragging it with us. And right. Yeah. Right. There. That is a great lesson in in uh, learning to let go. Well, I cannot believe how fast time flies chatting with you because we've gone through forty five minutes already. And, I know. Uh, but it's. It, I just love talking with you. I, I just find it so interesting. I wanted to have you talk a little bit about. You know, in your book, you have an entire chapter dedicated to what you call the care conversation. And um, I'd like you to dive a little deeper into into that, if you wouldn't mind. Sure. I'll give you a quick overview. So I take the letters of the word care, C-A-R-E, mm-hmm. and I break that down to kind of give a formula to caregivers on how to have that conversation with your older parent. And I want to just tell you anecdotally real quick, I spoke last week at a senior center that's out here near me in Southern California, and of course most of the attendees were, you know, um, folks who were over the age of 65. I had quite a few people who were in their 70s and some in their 80s. And and this topic came up, and I just touched on it at the end of my presentation because I was talking on another subject. And Almost every single person in the audience came up to me afterwards and said, can you talk about that care conversation at our next session? Because I really want to know more about how to talk to my adult kids. And I thought, ah, hallelujah, because, you know, we're always thinking as caregivers we need to find a way to talk to our older parent. But now I have the parents, if you will, saying they want tips. So I think this is is something that works for both generations. But Taking the, the, the letters, um, here's what I, you know, give the formula to for caregivers. And I say, first of all, C stands for just simply create the caregiving conversation. It's, it is a hard conversation to have. Um, a great um, personal care service um, agency out there that's international, actually, and it's called Home Instead. They have a formula called the 40-70 rule. 
and they say, if you're 40 or your parent is 70, you should be having this conversation. That's kind of the, the marker, if you will, for when you should have the conversation. But, you know, whether it's taking something out of the news, like, for instance, uh, Glenn Campbell's, you know, Alzheimer's diagnosis and how that's impacting his family, um, you know, sometimes when you don't necessarily make it personal right off the bat with your parent and you talk about something a little bit more abstract, it eases your your parent into the conversation where you can start saying, gosh, you know, how hard it must be for his family and, you know, and then all of a sudden it can kind of open the gate. So just creating that conversation is the first step. And then the A is acknowledging wishes and asking questions. So what that means is you want to ask a lot of questions, and you don't want to fire off these questions like your Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes. So it might be a series of conversations. It's not going to be one conversation you have. But you want to start to ask a lot of questions. And here's a, a good lesson learned. Joan London, who I interviewed for my book, she told me that she knew that her mother had a long-term care plan because that was part of their conversation over the years. So she felt like, oh, whoosh, okay, mom's taken care of. I don't need to worry about it. Well, guess what? Joan never asked to see the plan, didn't ask any details of the plan. And what she found out was that the, um, the duration of the benefits for that long-term care plan only lasted three years. So once the benefits were depleted and the three years were up, Joan then had to absorb the financial impact of caring for her mom with dementia, and she is now taking care of her mom 12 years past the expiration of that long-term care plan. And so she wow. said to me, Sherry, if I'd simply had a conversation with my mom more in-depth and asked a few more questions, I would have been a little bit better prepared. So I think that's a great lesson learned from Joan. Um, so that's the A, ask a lot of questions, and then acknowledge the wishes. I mean, after all, this is you're your parent's partner in caregiving and in carrying out their wishes, whether it's end of life or, you know, where they want to live or whatever it is, and you have to have thoughtful conversations and plan with them. Let them know you're the partner in this, but you have to ultimately, um, you know, acknowledge what they want. The R in care stands for, again, review the plans, and that goes back to the Joan London lesson. Don't just ask if there's a long-term care plan. Ask about it. Well, what does it say, Mom? How long does it last? What kind of benefits does it give you? That's going to really help you better prepare because, again, there can be pitfalls and gaps and, you know, unknowns, and your parent may think that things are handled, but things change every year, and... We have to keep up with that, and that's, again, where we can be a good caregiving partner to our parents. So review the plans. And then the E, the final letter, is engage the family. And, again, if you have the conversation early on and then maybe you start it with mom or dad and then you bring in siblings or others to have more of a family conversation, then your expectations are set. You know ahead of time if your younger brother is going to be a flake and not be involved in all in helping with mom and dad when the time comes, and then you're, you're less frustrated when that does occur. Or you can start to divvy up the responsibilities among the siblings who say, well, you know what, gosh, I'm a lawyer, so I'll handle all the legal side of this, you know, or whatever. So having that conversation with family is really critical. And, you know, often I talk to caregivers and they say, you know, I've got a lot of sibling conflicts. <laughs> 
having that conversation with the whole family is not easy, and I agree, it isn't always easy. And so depending on your family dynamic, you may want to engage um, a professional who is a mediator, and that can be a geriatric care manager, um, and sometimes you can even get access to those GCMs through your employer. I know a lot of employers offer that. I, I do work with a company called LifeCare, and they do that type of employer benefit for 61,000 companies across the country. So make sure you ask your employer, your HR department, if you have access to a GCM. Or it can be an elder law attorney who can help guide the family. And, and when you have that objective professional expert third party, all of a sudden it kind of neutralizes a lot of the emotions that happen within families um, because you've got this expert who's saying, well, this is what you all need to think about. So that's, that's the care conversation that I, I like to give the tips for caregivers to, on how to have this, this conversation with family. Which is, it's wonderful. And I, I love that, you know, that people are asking, how do I have the conversation with my kids, as well as the kids asking, how do I have my conversation with, with my folks or friends, whatever. But looking at it from all sides, because not just one side is having issues with this. Um, everybody's kind of thinking it um, and noticing it, but no one wants to kind of dive into the pool and have the conversation. So I'm I'm so glad that you're helping people have those have those tools to do that. That's just a critical, critical piece uh, with things. Now, Sherry, if there was one thing that you wanted to share with people, because we're running out of time here with you, and I just apologize, but it just flies with you. It's so much fun. Um, <laughs> it is fun. We'll just, just have to have you back again. Um, what, what, what are some things that you'd like to make sure that people know that we haven't had a chance to cover yet today? Sure. Well, a couple, couple things that I'd like to give to your listeners. First of all, we've talked a lot about, you know, support groups and, you know, finding things like the memory cafes that you mentioned. And, you know, I always like to say the Alzheimer's Association does such a wonderful job connecting people in this Alzheimer's dementia community and particularly acknowledging the caregiver's role. So ALZ.org is their website. They have a dedicated caregiver a dementia care center on their website and there's places there's something called all connected where you can do community chats with other caregivers there's a a whole calendaring tool which will help you set up a volunteer network that's private online of family and friends you put in things on a calendar where you might need help where you need to get a break or need to take that time for yourself and you can use that your volunteers, you know, um, stepping up to help you. So I like to really support them because I think they do such a wonderful job and they're a great resource for caregivers. Um, and then I want to mention, we didn't get into it, so maybe this will be our next conversation, but I have something you called the Me Time Monday Plan, and that really is the plan to help caregivers get the seven magnificent dimensions of wellness that we started talking about. Me Time Monday is really a concept around me time, which is what is that time that's just for you? It's whatever brings joy in your life. It, it's a guilty pleasure. I mean, it could be literally like taking a whole afternoon and sitting down and watching DVDs of Downton Abbey. That could be your me time. Um, it doesn't have to be exercise. It doesn't have to be, you know, something you should do. It's something you want to do. And I, and I just wrote an article for Huffington Post that you'll have to check out. 
It's called The Sandwich Generation and um, Eight Childish Things a Caregiver Should Do. And it goes back to our childhood on, you know, getting naps, taking baths, um, having playtime, you know, daydreaming, all those things we did as kids when we were carefree. That can be part of your me time. And the Monday part of this is, is a whole science and research developed by Johns Hopkins University and Columbia University and others, and a group called the Healthy Monday Campaigns, which is a nonprofit organization, uses the science of Monday to help people adopt healthier habits. And so they launched a Caregiver Monday campaign. They asked me to be a partner in it. That's why I do my Me Time Monday videos, um, which are weekly tips on how to find me time. And um, it's 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 about the refresh button. It's Monday is the start of the work week, the start of the school week. It's, you know, most of us go to, you know, church or synagogue or whatever once a week. So there's this whole concept around Monday and once a week being the start of things. And I think it's a great um, concept for caregivers to use because it gives you 52 chances throughout the year to take Monday as the day that you plan your me time. So it doesn't have to happen on Monday. But Monday is when you go, okay, let me look at my weekly calendar. When am I going to find some time for myself this week, and how am I going to do that? So you really put together your plan. And then if you get derailed one week, it's just a horrible week, things went haywire, it's okay. You've got another Monday coming up. You reset on Monday and say, okay, guess what? My train went off the tracks last week. How do we get this thing back on track? And you get a chance to do it again. And so I, I like the Me Time Monday concept, and I just wanted to kind of get get those tools out to your listeners to think about. Oh, I I love that. I love that. So how do people find out? You know, how do they get to the Me Time Monday? Why don't you go ahead and give everybody your contact information? Because you're just you're you know you're you're just doing such cool things, and we want to make sure people can find you. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So really the best resource is for all these things I'm talking about, if you go to my website, which is caregivingclub.com, so it's caregivingclub.com, you're going to find the articles I'm referencing. You're going to find the Me Time Monday videos and get a link to the Caregiver Monday campaign. You'll find information about my book, uh, my workshops and webinars and, and all the other things that you know I'm doing. And, and um, So that's really the best resource for people. Wonderful. Well, great. So that is caregivingclub.com, and you're also on Facebook. So if you're out on Facebook, check her out and like her and spread the word that way. If you're a Twitter, a Twitter, well, if you're a if you're on Twitter and you're a tweeter, um, you can follow her there too. And you have two handles. You do the caregiving club, and then you also do Sherry Snelling as well. Correct. Yes, so Caregiving Club is going to be about our activities and research and articles on caregiving, very caregiving specific. And then Sherry Smelling, you're going to find me tweeting about some of my favorite teachers and going to Starbucks in between some of my caregiving tweets. So just to give you the difference between the two. (laughs) Okay, okay. And then you also have a YouTube channel too, it looks like. Um, Yes. Yes, and that's where you can also find the videos and the TV show that you referenced earlier, Handle with Care, and I've done some a lot of celebrity on the red carpet videos with everyone from Mark Helgenberger and Holly Robinson-Pete and Ron Howard and Jason Alexander and Big Bang Theory cast, so you can check those out on my YouTube channel. 
Wonderful. Great. Now, we do have somebody on the line, and I just, I don't know, sometimes people call in and listen this way. Most people go through the Internet, but there's somebody at a 248 number, and if you had a question for Sherry, since we're wrapping up, um, you need to push one, and then I'll pull you into the conversation, but if you're just listening, that's fine, and your area code is a 248 number. So we'll just give them a, a minute there on that. But Sherry, it's just a, it's always such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's just a, a fun conversation, and I so appreciate everything you're doing. And I'm really looking forward to um, to having you back on again. And um, well, the, thank you, Lori. Yeah, yeah and, and I was going to say, what you do is so great. This is such a great program for people to get great information, and your guests are always really interesting. I listen in. So thank you again for doing it and for having me on. Well, great. And Jeff with the um, Purple Angel program says to say hi and thanks before you, before you head out. So thank you again. And we will we'll definitely, well, we're going to talk a little later this afternoon. Well, Sherry and I have some some things up our sleeves, so we'll see what happens with those. <laughs> That's right. <But> Stay tuned. <laughs> okay. Well, you, ha- you have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you soon, okay? Thanks, Lori. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Well, before I bring in our uh, our next guest, I just kind of want to highlight a couple of things for you midway uh, mid program wise. If you weren't able to listen to our show last week on the 23rd, I highly encourage you to go listen to this show and to pass it out. The show is on dementia and driving, and I really thought it was uh, a fabulous show. If I say so myself, it was all. Um, pretty much all-encompassing. So we had people with dementia and how they were dealing with the driving issue. We had a family caregiver on. We had a doctor. We had somebody from insurance. We had somebody who had a long history with the state patrol and now does training. So it's a very, very interesting conversation. And again, you can go ahead and embed this show or tweet it or like it, do whatever, but um, I think it will really help people have the conversation. The feedback that we've gotten is that we need to do uh, probably another show and dive in even deeper and hear even more voices, but it was a solid two hours that just flew by. I I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Our next show coming up is going to be on the 6th, so it'll be next Tuesday, and that'll be with Us Against Alzheimer's, so we're going to hear what all this they're up to, and I'm having um, Shirley Gurkowski back with us, and she is passionate about oral health and has some real unique things and ways uh, that a lot of times the general public doesn't know about um, how oral health can affect our health in general and different tools that we can use. We also had our last dementia chats. Um, All of those are recorded. And our next one is coming up on, I want to say it's the the 13th, but I have to double check because I didn't have that in front of me. Yeah, on the 13th. And again, those are our free webinars where I interview people with dementia and they are the experts. So and all of those are um, on alzheimerspeaks.com as well. And then the blog had, I thought, some really interesting articles. Um, one was just a, an article describing uh, what, what it's like to have dementia. And I actually found this on Facebook, and it was done by Channel 12 News. And it's a beautiful article about Donna Baker and her husband and their journey. And it really gives 
good, solid, specific um, experiences of what it's like to live with this disease. And I just posted that yesterday. And then on the 27th, um, there was an article that ARP did regarding the memory cafes. And, the, you know, they talked about the expansion of those. Uh, the 25th, uh, there's a video on Judy Berry with Lakeview Ranch, um, and it talks about her pain to passion and uh, a, a stubborn woman's journey in terms of how she is shifting our dementia care culture. Judy had a mother who got very aggressive and was kicked out of multiple sites, and now she has a couple of small group homes, and she takes people in that are aggressive and gets rid of their aggression with no medication. Um, pretty phenomenal work that she's doing. And for those of you that did not see, um, KSTP featured myself um, in Alzheimer's Speaks, and there's lots of clips of my mom in there, which uh, people always enjoy seeing. So uh, that was on the 22nd that that was uh, that that aired, and many channels, uh, I guess, around the nation pick that pick that up as well. But the full longer version is um, tapped into this article. And so feel free to, to go ahead and take a peek at that. Again, I just want to highlight for those of you that are just jumping in, if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, um, check out ADI, Alzheimer's Disease International, um, or the Lewy Body um Louis Body uh, Dementia Association um, can also help you with that specific disease. The Alzheimer's Studies uh, .com will help you with the Tau Clinical Trials, um, and then again the Purple Angel. I can't talk highly enough about the Purple Angel in this global symbol that is going to help connect us all around the world, provide better care. And you can find all of um, information on Purple Angel by either going to my site or just Google it, and it'll pop up all over the place. So with no further ado, I'm going to go ahead and roll in and introduce our our second guest. Um, again, this is going to be a very fun conversation that I think will go fairly quickly as well. It always amazes me how fast these hours go. Um, and next, I would like to introduce you to the co-owners of Way Consulting. Um, as memory care consultants, their goal is to open the gates of the learner's mind to different approaches for everyday challenges facing family members and caregivers, um, professional and, and family both, dealing with individuals suffering from, from memory loss. Now, Diana Wayne is an RN and she's a certified dementia practitioner and she really thinks out of the box on how do you care for an individual who's got uh, dementia. And over the last 25 years, she has worked to eliminate physical, psychological, and chemical restraint use in care facilities. Uh, she is a national speaker, a consultant, and she really also focuses on the social needs of the person. She's done uh, some research, and she's a writer, and she shares her simple tactics um, and techniques that are just really, really easy uh, to, to swallow and to obtain. She's written a book, I Was Thinking. It's called Unlocking the Door to Successful Conversations 
with loved ones with cognitive loss. So welcome, Diane. How are you doing? Just fine, Lorraine. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And we're getting a little feedback, and I'm not sure what what's I'm going on. Myself. I'm all by myself. I'm by myself in my room, so it's not coming from here. I'm thinking. Interesting. Well, hopefully it's not. Are you hearing it as well? I just heard a gentleman's voice, but it went away. Oh, see, now I'm not hearing that at all. I'm hearing my voice, which is strange. Your voice actually keeps breaking up for me is what happens. Hmm. As I was listening to your conversation with Sherry, your voice would get get all gravelly. Um, Okay, and once in a while it will do that. Um, right now it's it's pretty bad, and I'm not quite sure what the what the deal is. So I am going to just switch um, phones here for just a second. So bear with me, okay? No problem. Okay, we're going to try this. Is this better? It sounds better. Let's see what happens. Okay, good deal, good deal. The Internet's in, in its ways. You just never quite <laughs> know. Now, is is um, is Lynn with you? Yes, she this, is. She's on, on the other line in a different room. Okay, so she is on the other line. Okay, I wasn't sure if you guys were on speakerphone or not. So, no. Nope. Um, sometimes when we nope. do speaker, it'll cause a problem. So let me go ahead and introduce Lynn then. And Lynn is a certified occupational uh, therapy assistant, and she brings over 25 years of experience in treating individuals in their home and in healthcare settings. She's had extensive experience in geriatric care, both on a professional and a personal basis. And she holds a lot of different um, certifications, um, specialties in treating individuals with Parkinson's and neurological movement disorders, um, delay in disease and exercise programs, and cognitive um, function age assessment. So, and she's also a certified dementia practitioner. And as a therapist and a speaker, she has shared her knowledge at uh, seminars across the country. Now, Lynn Denny is also the co-owner with Diana, and um, she became a, a partner after utilizing. Um, your book, it sounds like, with her own father-in-law. So welcome, Lynn. How are you doing today? Thank you, Lori. I'm doing wonderful. Good, good. I'm glad to glad to have you both here. This is uh, this is fantastic. Um, I'm hoping my connection stays with us here. This is very unusual, but um, it it happens once in a while. <laughs> Anyways, um, I'm going to start out with uh, talking with Diana. And Diana, can you tell us, you know, why did you write the book? Well, I also had a personal experience with dementia. My mom was a sufferer, and um, I made absolutely every mistake you could possibly make. I've always thought if you're going to do something, do it to the utmost, even if it's totally wrong. And I think I, that's what I was able to accomplish. Um, but there was a day in my life that really changed my whole world, and I was in a nursing home. My background has been working in nursing homes with nursing home staff. And this was, oh golly, early 2000s. And I am taking a break. 
we're doing a seminar on care planning. Now, there was a hot item right there. And we take a break, and I walk, go to the restroom, and as I come back, this is the scene I saw. A man and a woman are sitting in this beautiful, because we've determined that beautiful, I guess, is exactly what folks want, which kind of makes me fussy, and someday we could talk about that. But anyway, (laughs) beautiful lounge. There were no staff members in there. There was a gentleman and a lady. And he says to the lady, so, what did you have for breakfast? Well, she said, it was absolutely wonderful. I enjoyed every single bite. He goes, what would you have? She said, lots of people, everybody enjoyed it. We all kind of enjoyed it. And he got real anxious with her, and he said, what did you have for breakfast? Bacon, toast, eggs, what did you have? What did you have? Until he figuratively slammed her against the wall. He didn't do that physically, but mentally he slammed her against the wall until he forced her to say, I don't know, which which is what happened. Then he said to her, so, what did you do yesterday? Oh, she said, we had such a good good day. We had a wonderful day. He goes, what did you do? She said, lots of people went, and we laughed a lot, and it was just a lot of fun. He goes, what would you do? What would you do? Did you go for a ride? Did you play bingo? What would you do? At which point she started to cry, and she said to him, I guess I don't know what I did yesterday, and, and all I know is I want to go to my room. And he said, go to your room, go to your room. Every time I come to see you, all you want to do is go to your room. Don't you want to talk to me? And I wanted to say, sir, that answer is no. And Nobody it's not because... No to you. <laughs> And it's not because he, it turned out after I investigated, it was a husband and wife. They'd been married for years and years and years. How many times had those two conversation starters worked like a charm? Okay, And I was frustrated with the professionals in that we have not taken the responsibility of teaching him how to have a good conversation. And that was the day I decided I need to write a book and I need to write it for families. Okay, I need to help them understand because his day was not very good that day. And that was really what got me off dead center and uh, starting to write. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad you did because uh, those types of things happen all so often. And, I mean, we mm-hmm. anybody in the industry sees that. And I, and I also have to say that I love your comments about it was a beautiful setting because home isn't about a beautiful setting. Home is in my and it was in my mind. Home is a much deeper place than a physical box. Sometimes yeah. we um think if it looks pretty, it it is pretty and it'll be good. And we we forget about all the details of care. We you know, just because it looks pretty and somebody looks okay doesn't mean they're okay on the inside. Right. You know, with right. their emotional health and and various things. So right. I appreciate you bringing up both of those both of those factors. Um, I think a lot of it goes back to our youth orientation in this country. Um, we have some real challenges valuing the elderly, and because we value pretty, then we assume that if I do the best and spend the most money and get a pretty place, I'm doing the best I know how to do. I, I just don't understand all this other stuff. And we as healthcare profes- professionals haven't been uh, real good at explaining what should be the expectations of the family members. It's not just the pretty fountain. It's not the white baby grand piano. Yeah. What else should I look for? And uh, yeah. we're just and beginning yeah. to hit that tip of the iceberg. Uh, go ahead, Lynn. It sounded like you wanted to make a comment. 
Um, no, I'm, I'm, I absolutely agree. And um, just, uh, you know, another thing is um, recently, just last night on Frontline, um, it talked about um, the different um, um, problems families face um, with one, um, not being edu- being able to educate when they make that transition from a home of how those new staff members, even um, when they move from maybe their own home setting to an assisted living setting, on how to um, communicate effectively with those people and get to know them. And oftentimes um, that's a frustrating um, um, block even for the family. So, um, you know, it looks pretty and and you would assume that everybody understands that, you know, if you ask them the questions, um, the person with um, memory loss or dementia is going to give you the right answers, you know, and that's not always the case because they're not capable of doing that. Correct, correct. And the, <clears throat> I believe the piece you're talking about, excuse me, now I have a frog in my throat, <clears throat> is the PBS uh, Frontline Special <clears throat> correct. that was done about emeritus, which is yeah. pretty powerful. I don't know if anyone has seen that or not, um, but it was... Uh, a very very powerful piece. I did post it on the on the blog and ask people to um, put in questions and comments on the piece if they thought it was balanced or not, and you know what they got out of it. Uh, I, I just uh, it was you know it's an hour long and it was a it was a long long piece, um, but I thought they covered a lot of very valuable points. Uh, my my concern is is that it's going to scare a lot of people from necessarily going to an assisted living. And I think it does suit a need. I, I do think that people have to learn what they're looking for. But I think we also have to be honest as a society of what we're doing and what services are truly needed. And um, and until we're honest with that, we can't ask the right questions. And, you know, we're too busy. Is it pretty? Right. I think I, what I'm seeing in that, um, in that uh, um, frontline program Really, I saw, what, 25, 30 years ago as we looked at nursing homes. And at that time, we thought we didn't have any options. Then the option of assisted living came along. And I was hopeful that that option would really be able to be the better mousetrap because it is predominantly private pay. And so I'm paying. The government's not paying. The insurance company's not paying. I'm paying for the care in in the assisted living settings. And I was hopeful that our consumers would be um, more discerning. But I'm I'm thinking my whole issue of we don't value got its kind of self in the road. And so maybe, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent at least might make folks think uh, about the questions they might want to ask. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of saw it as an opportunity um, for us, uh, those of us who are, are, are blogging and are on um, – are able to speak about this and share our knowledge is this is our opportunity to say um, not to scare them off of assisted living but to make these families members through um, sharing this, this information like we're doing Lori is to make them experts on knowing what to ask so and so if they go in they're going to teach those assisted living places the answers to the questions. And, and, again, one of the things that Walk Consulting provides is testing them, knowing how they respond cognitively to what you're asking and how they receive information. And if families can understand that themselves, and when that time comes, um, they can help them better assess the, the people that are going to be caring for their loved ones, 
how to do that as well. So just like last night on the Frontline situation, well, of course they asked her if she wanted something to drink or, or wanted to go for a walk, and she would say no. Maybe she wasn't understanding or they weren't able to understand that that was her pet answer because maybe she was having pain and, and she was not able at that level of dementia to share that because she was beyond that point. And so I see it as a really a, a good opportunity not to scare people off of assisted living um, because there are really wonderful assisted living facilities that do a good job and are trying to do even better, but that we take that opportunity um, with the knowledge that you and all of the people that call in and share these things there we're there okay (laughs) Lynn are you there yep I'm here oh because you just cut off all of a sudden on my Hmm. end so can you finish that last sentence please I I just actually see it as a a strong opportunity um, for not just us but all of you and all the listeners and all the people that are out there the more we get out there that you know it's important to be able to effectively communicate and utilize all the different things that are out there um that you know it's it's not a scary place to send your loved one if that's the type of care that they have progressed to and that there are good places out there great diana anything you want to add no, I think that we've kind of, you know, gone around the mulberry bush on that particular program. Um, if we look at, as Lynn mentions, if we look at the communication piece, um, I think not being able to communicate well with our loved ones who have memory loss is extremely difficult. It's a difficult, uh, it causes bad issues like this, that uh, it's hard to, for us, to, for the family to understand what the resident's saying. More than that, um, I see it before we get to the assisted living, before we get to any institutional setting. What I see is the major problem with not being able to communicate well with our loved ones is alienation. I believe that as I attempt to correct them, I argue rather than agree. I don't discuss, I deny. As I do those kind of things with them, they stop listening to me. They stop liking me. They can't remember why they don't like me. All they know is when they see me, they're going, "Mm, that lady makes me feel bad. Because nobody's interested in failing. And I think we, by trying to pull them into our reality, where they can't go, we deny who they are. And what I see that just makes me really, really sad is I call it the stranger danger um, phenomenon. What happens is because I have tried to fix and I have argued and I have disagreed with my loved one, not because I mean, but because I don't know any better and I think this is the best I can do. I've actually heard professionals say, you remind her that you're her daughter, not her sister. Mm, My goodness. But at any rate, um, what happens is we get the strangers that come in. And actually, we probably could have some of those folks on your talk show and they would sound better than even I do because they know how not to make the first person with dementia unhappy. They're the ones who say, I could help you with this and, well, I could help you with that and, and I could, ha- and I do need a little money. I received phone calls from family members who say, could you please help me? And I said, sure, what's the matter? And they said, Mama's now given $200,000 to a total stranger. She's given away her diamond ring. 
And it's a real hard question to answer because what's happened is they've alienated them by their approach to loving them. That scares me the most. And I think, I know you've probably had people talk about this a lot on your show, the wedge that dementia drives between family members all by itself is uh, phenomenal because mm-hmm. of difference in understanding. And now we add the issue that mom has now given away everything that we thought was ours um, to somebody we don't even know because that person didn't make them feel stupid. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that that's a really good point because families don't typically see that's why this has happened. You know, that there's this comfort level. It's, it's uh, typically all well, the, the other, you know, the other person is bad. And the other person, I mean, you know, probably it's not the most kosher thing in the world to be doing. Again, every situation is a little bit different. But, um, you know, it is about making someone feel comfortable and safe and, and yeah. loved. Yeah. And connected, and you, you know, people with dementia can be much more vulnerable to that, um, and feel more disconnected. And so, it's it's our job to really learn how to how to engage. So, can you share with us um, a little bit about your book, and maybe some tips? Um, maybe give us one, and then we'll we'll talk with Lynn and say, you know, how did she use this in real life? You know, with her own father-in-law. Okay. My book is actually a workbook rather than a reference book. Book That doesn't uh, mean it doesn't have valuable information in it. But what it actually has is um, examples, a uh, conversation that within two sentences goes wrong. The same conversation, by utilizing everything that we've talked about to this point, can go very, very well. Then, and probably the most powerful piece of the book, I believe, is pages that are have nothing but lines on them. And this is really the workbook section. And this is where the family needs to write down what does mom like to see, smell, taste, touch, and hear. What is mom? What are some do- stories that make her happy? I say mom because it was my mom. It could be dad. It could be brother. It could be your loved one. Um, but what are the things that they enjoyed talking about? And the reason I want you to write them down is if you do not have tools in your pocket when you make the phone call, when you stop by the house, or when you stop in the facility where they live, your mouth is going to open up and you're going to ask a short-term memory question because that's how we talk. We did that as we started this conversation today. Hi, Lori, how are you? Fine, how are you, Diana? That's how we talk. You and I understand that even if I had the worst headache in the world, I would probably say I'm fine because you really don't want to hear about my headache. All right? (laughs) But someone with dementia hears it as a real question. And if you are not ready as a family member to manage, I do not say the word control, to manage the conversation by saying, I was thinking about the time we had that dog, had so many fleas, we called him Scratchy. Okay? (laughs) If mom understands it, great, she jumps on. If she doesn't, it was my story not hers. It's very different than saying to her, hey, Mom, you remember the dog we had had so many fleas we called him Scratchy? You remember that, don't you? You, re- you remember that dog? You re- Come on, you remember that dog. He was beige. You re- and all the power, all the power, all the weight now is on her shoulders. Okay, mm-hmm. I want that weight on my shoulders. But the value of my book is it is a place to put that information so that before I make the contact, I look it up and I get myself about three topics I'd like to discuss. 
and we can actually talk about how many to talk about and how long to stay in a, in a few minutes. But that's the value I see. And people talk a lot about, well, you know, it's a really lovely book, and I you know, shared it with all my brothers and sisters, and we wrote nothing in it. And I want to say, then let me give you your money back, because it's not a reference book. It's not that it wasn't meant for that. It was meant to gather the information about mom, so we can all share it. And I laugh, and I think about. I was talking to someone this morning, and I think about this. A couple of years ago for Christmas, my kids gave me a beautiful journal, and a wonderful pen, and a jar. And in that jar are little slips of paper, and they said, here's what you do. Just every day, just pull a little slip out of there, and it'll say what was the name of your favorite dog and tell a story about him. And you just write that in the journal, and then we'll capture information about you. And I said, oh, that's just so swell. I've got it. I, I dust it. I dust it. I make sure it's nice and neat, and I haven't written a word in it, okay? Because I'm busy. i got lots of other stuff going. And someone was saying, well, you know, I, I, I asked families to fill in those pages, but they didn't. And I said, and they never will. You need to sit down with them. Once they get started, they'll go very quickly. When I finally decided to use my own information with myself and my mom, I sat down in front of my computer, and I stared at that screen for 45 minutes. All I could think of was what, what was missing, what's, what had mom had lost. I couldn't think of any of the positives that were still there. And I thought, and I've had I, being alone, if you give me a piece of paper, I'll kind of fill it out like the journal that I think is a wonderful idea. But when I finally wrote the first one, I went, oh, and then there's the one about, and don't forget the one about, and I began to build that bevy of tools. So it's it's really a matter of taking the time, sitting with your family, and going, okay, I'll write. Everybody tell me, what does mom like to see? And let's write it, and then share the information. That I, I, I like that example of you know this can be done alone or it can be done you know as a as a family. Um, Lynn, how did you use the book? Actually, just to give you a little background, I have to tell you um, I'm very privileged to have a partner who is also my mentor and who made a significant difference. So any of your listeners. Um, just to give you a little background, my husband and I are both in healthcare. My husband is a nursing home administrator and has been for almost the last 30 years. His father came to live with us um, and lived with us for six and a half years with Alzheimer's type dementia. And we had him about eight months um, before I was really tuned into um, Diana's book, and there had been an article in our local paper here. It was a, a wonderful article. I read it. And before I read that article, I have to tell you, um, you would assume that my husband and I both knew how to deal with our father-in-law because actually we were probably considered specialists in dealing with geriatrics and dementias, and he had seen it on a daily basis as well as I as a therapist. Dad came to live with us, and my husband would get really super frustrated with my father-in-law saying, Dad, you remember, you remember that neighbor we had? Well, I would watch my father-in-law shut down and almost feel like he was a scolded child a lot of times. And there was some really some funny things that he did, um, such as throw all my Lennox silverware away that I learned from some other techniques in, in, um, from Diana um, and from the book and, and from what she talked about. But after I read her book and we started to make note of um, things that, my husband remembered and I remembered with my father-in-law. It took a totally different approach. And from being very, uh, very sullen look that looks like he was scolded 
became a look when we started to say, you know, when my husband started to say, and I coached him, and I learned as well, and we still made mistakes and said, do you remember Dad? And then we'd fix it. Um, he, he totally changed. His eyes became bright, and he was able to expound on, you know, when my husband would say, Dad, do you remember, or I was thinking about, um, you know, the neighbor who had the BB gun and I got the BB gun. My father-in-law was able to sometimes share that story or he would go on about another neighbor. And it was really cool to see his eyes really lighten up and him totally change. And just the other things that we did that we learned from the book and from writing things down, um, throwing my silverware away, I let him throw the silverware away, get it out of the garbage, and then after a while I quit trying to find my Lennox silverware, bought dollar store silverware, never worried about it again. Never had to worry about making him sad or angry because he didn't remember that he had thrown it away. It wasn't a big deal. It's dollar silverware, go buy new. You know, um, and those kind of things. So the book really helped transform situations that were sad and frustrating, and even made um, my father-in-law angry at times to really positive interaction at dinner time or when he's sitting around and, and, t- and watching television with us. And we could um, start up conversations with him and say, Dad, I was thinking about the first time that you met me, you know, and he would go on to say, yes, you know, you're so beautiful, and if Robert wasn't married to you, I'd marry you. It became just wonderful communication. And as he progressed, I can tell you that that still worked, that maybe the conversations were less and less, and, but there was still always a time where he would, he would um, chime in with something. And uh, frequently we would make mistakes and say, Dad, do you remember, don't feed the dog? You know, and we learned through trial and error and through redirecting ourselves and forgiving ourselves when we we goofed up, that we could get back on track with him. And at the end of his days, he died last October. Um, He was happy. Before that, um, he was constantly asking to go home. After we changed and, like Diana said, let him go and accepted that what his strengths still were, which is one of the things that Diana and I like to focus on, the strengths that we encourage families to look for that they still have versus what they've lost. Um, it was totally different. And he, after it, um, after several years, said, I just love my home. Because we didn't shame him. We didn't make him feel bad. And here we were supposed to be the professionals and know when we brought him into our home that we were doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't say enough about it. Um, I have passed it on to um, friends to other colleagues um, that have had these issues, and they feel the same. They um, really find it as a wonderful, and it's not, I mean, it's a book, but it's actually like a tool that they can utilize in in helping them, especially when they're struggling. That's the time you need it most. When you're all out of, fresh out of ideas, you can you you can use the, the book and go back and, and uh demonstrate some of those things that um, are there for you at at view. Yeah, it's, it is um, one of the things that I like, well, there's many things that I like about this book, Diana, is um, it's small, so it's not intimidating. Um, you've used large print, and it's very simple to follow. You give a ton of examples, 
and then you you have structured it to be a, a use it book, to be a true reference book in terms of one that you would have tucked in your pocket or in your purse um, that you can actually use and apply to your own life. It's not, you know, this isn't somebody else's story. Um, this becomes your own. And I think that's part of the, the beauty of, of how you've designed this. Um, you know, the the pages with the lines, you know, where you say, you know, what did they love to hear? You know, what did they love to taste? What did they love to smell? Um, including all those senses in, because I think most people don't, consciously think in terms of sensory perception and it's it's huge with this disease um and so i i just i love the book i think it's i I think it's a great tool not only for families but i think for staff in terms of getting them to shift what's important you know why should we make that bread you know while we're doing an activity why should yeah. we um, make some soup? You know, what is that really going to add? It, you know, it's not about eating the soup, and it's you know, it's not necessarily about cooking the soup. You know, it's the whole experience of the soup. It gets past the task and dives into the experience. Right. And and that's a huge piece that I think is missing in terms of cultivating person-centered care. I'm afraid what's happened to us um, is we've we've been such a medical model, and you know we we used to see most of our elderly were in some sort of institutions, um, and we got all nervous and scared because the federal government, and that was part of the issue with Frontline. The federal government has written many, many, many rules, and and you know at the risk of getting in trouble, which is probably not new to me, um, I believe a lot of the rules that the federal government wrote off on for nursing homes and are considering for assisted living have to do with our own feelings of guilt, and I got to write enough laws so that that care is absolutely wonderful, and I've always felt you can't legislate, um, be right, you can't legislate, think critically. That really is something that has to come from the people themselves. And so what has happened is I've taught this to um, professional people for many, many, many years before I decided to see if I couldn't get it to the families. But the one piece that um, we keep trying to drive home is exactly what you said, Lori. We've got to set this person up for success, which means – Lynn, Lynn referenced the cognitive functional age testing, and um, I'm going to talk about that in one second. But we've got to figure out how this person understands what you're saying to them so you they can be successful. That's the bread. The bread has nothing to do with eating the bread, like you said. It has to do with, look how, look how tall it got. Look how it was so fine because I needed it well. Look, look at the fact that I did it. I was successful. Here's our problem. If we don't know the person's ability to understand, many, many, many times from a family standpoint, from a caregiver standpoint, we push them beyond their capabilities. Um, there are there are several tests out there. The two that I like the best because they look at what's left. Many, many, many tests will look at what's missing. Okay, I already got that part figured out. I know we've got trouble here with mom. I understand that. I don't know what's left. And unless and until we begin to look at what's left, we're we're crapshooting it, um, trying to make them successful. And my mom was 
she really taught me so, so much. She said, do you understand I don't know how to boil water? I look at that teapot and I don't know what to do with it. So for me to say, hey, Mom, make me a cup of coffee, which sounds like I'm asking her for my help and making her feel useful, useful, made her feel terrible. Now she could wash the cups. She could get the spoon out. She could go to the cupboard and get the coffee. But the task of putting it all together was beyond her capabilities, and I didn't understand that. Alrighty, the test, the two cognitive functional age tests, the, we do one and there's another one that's been around. They've been around for like 30 years. And what makes me sad is we don't see folks utilizing them. I guess it would be kind of like this if I would say to Lynn, Lynn, you know what, I'm fairly sure that Lori LeBay is a diabetic. I'm fairly sure of that. And I heard the other day on TV, on the radio rather, that uh, metformin, you can get that, that, whatever that drug is, something to do with diabetes, you can get that at Walmart. So I think we'll just get some and send it to her. What do you think of that? And you and your family and Lynn would say to me, Diana, you're out of your relevant mind. We we need to get some lab work. We need to get some testing that says what kind of diabetes she has or if she has it. And so we get the right drug and we do the right intervention and we do right, 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 right. Okay. That's all I'm asking for the folks with memory loss is we need to look at their cognitive functional age because what we're doing right now is essentially giving them metformin when we don't even know if there's a di- if they're a diabetic. And that's where a lot of the conversations go wrong. We come in way too high, and, and Lynn, I'm going to steal your, your thunder. She, I always say it's like handing the keys to the car to the five-year-old and then wondering why it all went south because I didn't understand that they don't understand. And I have to tell this story. When I was six years old, and I'm 69 now, so this is 63 years ago, and this story feels to me like it happened yesterday. I was six years old. I grew up on a farm. My dad said to me, hey, go get the tractor. Bring it over here. Well, heck, I knew where the tractor was. I knew how to start it. So I went off into the barn, and I got it turned on. And I remember sitting there trying to figure out how to get it in gear. I knew you had to pull this gear shift, but I my legs were too short. I couldn't push the clutch and the brake all at the same time, and I was working on that, trying to make it make it work. All right, I know I forgot. I didn't open the garage or the barn door. I, I get that. Okay, I was six years old. That was my functioning ability. My dad came through that barn door and he was screaming at me. Now, as an adult, I can say he was scared to death. Had I gotten that thing in gear, awful things would have occurred. All righty. I can tell you that conceptually. I can tell you that my heart, every time I tell this story, my heart hurts again because I did what Dad told me to do, and I got in trouble. And he wasn't proud of me. And that's why I went to get the tractor in the first place. That's what we do to these folks by not knowing their cognitive functional age. We ask them to perform at a higher level than they're capable of. And we work our way backwards instead of starting down and working our way up by knowing where they, where they, uh, how they understand. So it's all a matter of how they perceive, not how they express, but how they perceive what you're telling them. What do they have left? And you and I, we've already talked about the senses. We already know that even at very, very young age, um, they, they can perceive, they can understand a smile, they can understand, I'm talking about babies, if we look at that. And people say to me, oh, you're not going to say that my mother's a five-year-old, are you? And I say, absolutely not. What I'm going to tell you is your mother is 91, has the experience of a 91-year-old, but when you talk to her, understands you with the skills of a 5-year-old. So why would you say things to her like, your behavior is inappropriate and it will not be tolerated? I would never say that to a (laughs) 5-year-old. They wouldn't understand Mm -hmm. it in the first place and it would just make them mad if they did understand them. 
So I, I just I, I'm I'm so saddened that we don't seem to look at testing or assessment for mental issues like we do for physical issues, medical issues. Now, do you use a, a particular um, testing or assessment format? Like, I, I personally love the, the comprehensive reality clock test. That's funny that you say that. Is that the, the reality comprehension clock test? <laughs> <laughs> Out of Toledo, Ohio? Actually, that's the one we use. Um, I became a, a colleague of Barbara Brock, who wrote that thing, um, I remember when she was on your show, actually, we were talking about it. But I became a colleague of hers as I was working in a long-term care facility, and I kept saying to people, if I could understand me the way they understand me, I think I could do a lot better job here. And somebody had me off to her. And I'll be honest, I thought it was voodoo. I was fairly sure it was voodoo. But I'm kind of inquisitive, so I went to meet with her and really became quite a believer. I have, we have, we have our affiliate, not affiliated with her, we're colleagues of hers. Um, to my way of thinking, it's easy, it's fast, and it actually does give you a number that makes some sense. And Lynn is uh, certified in that. So Lynn, why don't you talk a little bit about how you've been able to use that? Well, actually, I'm really, really super excited because from my background being a therapist, um, I am familiar, um, and I'm really going to date myself here, because many new therapists coming out maybe have just a granule of knowledge about Claudia Allen. And I loved Claudia Allen, and she's been a pioneer in um, uh, um, grading both um, mental um, mental levels as well as the cognitive levels, and she deals with a test Claudia Allen does. So I looked at all the tests being a therapist because, again, therapists are just, the same as families struggling. We, it's kind of like nailing jello to the wall when we're trying to treat them and not getting the outcomes that we want. So I looked at the um, RCCT, the, um, the test that we utilize, and I found that what I really love about it um, is that it is, from a therapeutic standpoint for all the therapists that are hopefully listening out there, it is super um, informative without... Um, utilizing a lot of time and energy on someone who is limited on those um, those abilities as it is for the client themselves who are going to um, take this this comprehensive test. So I love it. I can tell you that it is gives you the meat of what you need um, so that you can start off right where you are and knowing what they are capable, what their strengths are left, so that you can build on those. And as a therapist, um, that's what we want to do. We want to set short-term goals and long-term goals. And that's um, what we need to be doing as professionals, but also that that helps the families. Because really, as a home therapist as well, we get out there and as a therapist, and I'm speaking for myself and all the others, we treat someone who is a 45 and had a skiing accident the same the same protocol and the same treatment um, as someone who is 85 with memory loss and dementia who fell, broke their hip, getting up because they were unsafe and forgot what they needed to do. So knowing how they are going to understand the directions that you're giving them and how they need to have that instruction and if they need to have help really makes quite a difference in both their quality of life, the outcomes, um, the effectiveness of what, um, you know, our systems are, are set up to and how they're to perform. And 
it just it's again that successful ability for that person who will want to do that and is capable then of doing that because we know where they are cognitively. I think if we bring this back to the the family piece, one of the things that I've seen happen over and over by using um, the cognitive functional assessment is the family will say, usually get a big sigh. I knew I knew we had problems. I I guess I just didn't realize where they were. Okay, wh- how they understand me, and they can take the veil of guilt off of their shoulders. Just as I didn't make my mother a diabetic, I also didn't. I'm not responsible for her memory loss. But when I learned about her diabetes, I could help her. When I learned about her dementia, I could help her. And it it's kind of like looking at the blood sugars. And now we can actually talk about how can we now partner to help your mom. And it really seems to give people, families, an opportunity to go, okay, it's not it's not all my fault. And they can move forward. And that is a, a huge, huge issue because there is so much guilt wrapped in this disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's absolutely um, astonishing, really, when you when you break it down and look at um, how people feel, you know, dealing with this disease because it's so overwhelming and we're so undertrained and there's such a lack of knowledge and right. support out there. Even though we've got more support groups than ever, there's still we're not even close, in my opinion, to what it is right. that we need. Right. You know, our issue is we don't, as a country, we, we're we not real comfortable with mental health issues, and we see it as a mental health issue. Mm-hmm. Um, we get it all gummed up with that. And I, I go back uh, many, many years when Eagleton was running uh, on, the vice, on the ticket as a vice presidential candidate, and it came out that he'd had depression. Oh, my. And they pulled him off the ticket in a heartbeat. And at that time, I was actually on the mental health board, and I saw the setback when that occurred, and I don't know that we've ever regained um, <laughs> regained that piece. And that's what's really, really sad. Yeah, I would I would totally agree. Totally agree with that. Um, let's see here. I wanted to um, talk a little bit more on this this clock test and and how you have used it with families and what the uh, what the reception has been by family members. Actually, it has been very wonderful because basically. Um, as a matter of fact, um, Lori, we just had a recent situation where it was a, um, it was almost an emergency situation. Um, the, it was a very young woman. Um, I heard you speaking earlier of um, someone who was diagnosed very young. She was um, 57 years old, very very young. Husband was at his wit's end. Didn't know um, the doctor had really not expounded on it. Um, called us in. There were lots of um, things going on. She was actually removed from a daycare setting, and he was still um, full-time gainfully employed because he's not at retirement age. Went in and tested her um, and realized that she was really um, not understanding um, where he kind of thought that she was able to get and that sometimes she was just choosing not to pay attention to him found that she was basically functioning at about a four-year-old cognitive level. And so basically went through with him and explained to him where she was functioning. Also that even though she hadn't had any falls, 
um, the the comprehensive test really shows that she can, uh, the RCCT really shows that she is at a fall risk because of that spatial relationship. Also, what we did was say, okay, now, looking here, this is what she's able to do, and this is what you want to encourage her to do so that, you know, it's it's a, a progressive thing, but you can stave it off, just like in, in movement disorders. Um, probably 13 years ago, had you say um, someone with Parkinson's can make progress, um, you would have been laughed out of symposium. Now we know that that is absolutely not true, that Parkinson's can actually um, regain skills and be able to do well. And now we're learning more and more and more that by working on someone's strengths and knowing what they can do and having them do it as long as they can do it um, stays it off a little while longer. So we were actually, through testing, through the RCCT, was able to give that husband what she still was able to do what kind of communication and direction he needed to give her so that she wasn't acting out on those behaviors and that she was being involved. And I was actually, through that ability, um, through interaction with him and with her, was able to actually demonstrate and, and he was actually able to see it. So it was very, very positive because it it can be very it's kind of like a relief. It's kind of like a burden is taken off because they understand then that when you sit down with them and go over the, the results, that, okay, this is how. You have to do, the, do whatever you're asking them first. And then you have to break it down sometimes even more than that and do it with them and watch them do it. And it's okay if they don't get it perfect, but, again, they're performing that task. They're having success. They're not going to shut down. You know, again, our brain is meant to protect us. So that's where those behaviors were coming from with this particular um, lady. And that's where the husband was frustrated. Um, he was he was relieved to know that there were still a lot of things that she was able to do. And I think that's what this test allows us to do is look at somebody's function. You know, what they still have is strengths and some things that they need to be aware of and be careful of that's coming down and that they can then adjust as they need as this person progresses with their memory loss and dementia. I think what's so neat about the test is when we look back, and, and Lynn um, referenced it, referred to it, when we look back at the job of the brain, okay, and we all we, we all need to know this and, and revisit this concept, the job of the brain very simply, is to make the, make sense out of this situation to the best of my ability. If I just thought about my dad, and he's been dead for a long time, but there was somebody over there that kind of looked like him, in my ability level, I say, there's my dad, I want to talk to him. Alrighty. So I will make the best of this situation. That's the job of my brain. And Lynn said the second component of that is to keep me safe. I don't want you to make fun of me. I don't want you to say, come on, we get crazy or something, your dad's dead. I don't want that to happen. So I'm going to try to set this thing up to win. When I understand at the level of which they're functioning, think about a four-year-old, think about a five-year-old. Their job, their brain is exactly the same. And I always laughed and said, I don't believe children learn to lie. or I don't think they come into the world knowing how to lie. What they tell you is what they wish were true. 
Okay. Now they eventually learn how that works, how that works, if it works or if it doesn't work with your parents. But that uh, that uh, black magic marker uh, there, that on the on the living room wall, I sure wish it wasn't there. So when you ask me, did you put that on at my little four year old level? I go, no, I don't know. I don't know how that got there because I'm trying to keep myself safe because I know what's going to happen. So that to me is where the it, the rubber really meets the road. If I understand that's what the person's going to attempt to accomplish and they're doing it at this level, the power it gives me as a family member, I think it's phenomenal. I agree. Um and again, talking about success, um, if there's one piece of advice I could give for communication, again, is one, um, the book um, I was thinking is just an absolute wonderful tool. But as a therapist, when I deal with movement disorders, um, I frequently we frequently educate um, them, the person who's having any fascination or constant movements, to just stop and restart. And we're all going to make mistakes. Um, in being successful in having that communication with our loved one with memory loss or dementia. So we just need to stop, take a deep breath, and retry it again. Um, I think that's really important that we allow ourselves in in dealing with those that we love and others that we deal with with memory loss and dementia that, you know, it's okay, we're going to make mistakes. But, you know, there's tools out there and, and the more we practice and and do our homework um, in knowing that person with that memory loss, um, they're going to be successful, um, and we're going to be successful in having that communication and that interaction with them. One of the things that uh, we referenced earlier on that kind of fits right in here, and that is um, when I go to see mom, do you think I probably ought to stay, what, an hour or two to show her how much I love her? What happens is we need to understand that their energy level, they're using a lot of energy just to stay in the the situation. And in about 20 minutes, they're going to poop out. So what I want to do is fill those 20 minutes with the most pleasant experience I I can fill it with. So I want to go in with the, I was thinking about the cake you always made with the almond flavoring. I was thinking about the sweet corn we always had to bring in and if we dropped it coming in from the patch we we couldn't use it dad said it wasn't fresh enough you know what are all the stories but get about three only three ready and of all the stuff you have in the book or on the toilet paper wherever you wrote the stuff get about three try them i was thinking i was thinking i was thinking if any of them work that's fine if not you need to say you know i got to get running i've got to go get some kitty litter I love you much. See you soon. I don't believe in using the word goodbye. I think it's, uh, for me, it's a wall that you throw up. But the good news from a family member standpoint is once I've got these tools, I can use the same ones over and over and over. I don't need to keep getting more information. I always love to talk about my dog. You ask me about my dogs, I'm set to fly. So you don't need to come up with more and more questions when you found, you know, you've got a bevy that actually work. So I think that's a real positive also, is that um, I can go in and I have to tell you this business about about not staying forever. And I think what happens is they they stay, and the person with dementia is going, I don't know who, why you're here, and I'm awful tired, and I'd like to take a nap. Um, we always laugh about, you know people that you go to visit and you're out staying you're welcome and they'll say to their loved their loved one in the house why don't you and i go to bed so the company can leave 
<laughs> well, they don't have that ability, and they just get tired, more more tired and more tired. And you mentioned home earlier on, and I think a lot of times when they say, I want to go home, what they're really saying is, I, I want some security, I want to sleep. It's not a place. You said that earlier. It's a feeling, and I'm pooped right now, and you're talking too much. And I was working with a group of people in Hawaii, and we were doing a teleconference, and we were talking about all of this, and as you can tell, I love to talk, so I'm going on and on and on. And finally, the gentleman who was running the, the uh, teleconference said, you know, Diana, love to talk some more, but I've got to run to the store and get some kitty litter. I went, oh, John, that's great. Thanks a bunch. Big pause, and he started to laugh, and he went, gotcha, didn't I? He said, I listen, don't I? I said, you don't even have a cat, do you? And he went, nope. But he said, didn't it work well? And I said, sure, because it made sense to me that you had something else you needed to do. wasn't against me. <laughs> you didn't say, you're talking too much. <laughs> so it, it just it, there seems to be so many little, they're not really tricks, um, but really good techniques that set it up for a win-win. Laura, are you there? Lynn, I think you, are, you and I are talking to each other. Hello? You there, Lori? Nope. Oh, good. Okay. <laughs> Hello? How would, they, how would you like people to contact you? We've got about 30 seconds left. Well, you can go to Wayne Consulting Info, and I, we're having a little difficulty here, so hopefully this we're will back. be okay. Okay, um, we're we're so going to end here in just a couple of seconds. But uh, are you there, Lori? I am here. We just came came back when we realized we were talking to each other. <laughs> yeah, so, and not to um, you. We're we're just wrapping up the show. We're running out of time here. Oh, okay, so, sure. Um. We've got uh, www.wayconsulting. It's actually WA. It's though it were WA. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay, WA okay. Consulting. Well, wonderful, and it's on it's on the uh, the show there, so people will good, be good, able good. to click on that. But we've got to run. Time is out. So again, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Lori. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Thanks. Bye now. Mm-hmm. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.